Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge Mana Whenua of Te Awa Kairangi Kitai, where I'm recording today. Is it a beautiful day in Wellington? It's a beautiful day in Sydney. It's a beautiful day. It's been a beautiful week. It's just been so warm and sunny and delightful. That is great. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. I apologize. I have a squeaky chair. I don't know if you can hear it, but I can hear it. I'll do my best to edit That's it out. That's it adds ambiance. I'm sitting on the other side of my desk, so I'm right next to the door. So if any little invaders come in, I can just shut the door. Mm-hmm, I may have mm-hmm. to get rid of this chair at some point, but that's fine. <laughs> Let's just see how we go. Exactly. All about being flexible. Agile, as we say. Yeah, agile. Agile thinking. Yes, yeah, it's my agile workspace in my bedroom. <laughs> Love it. Well, speaking of agile... What sparked joy for you this week? I got a new wallet, and this is such an exciting thing for me because my wallet is also my weekly diary, and it's a Hobonichi, so it's like the fancy Japanese brand. But my favorite part about Mm -hmm. it is that it's Liberty fabric, and it's super beautiful. And of course, I forgot to bring it, so I will send a picture and show you. But I did link it in the show notes for everybody. But I'm just really excited because it's really pretty. It has flowers, and it's one of my favorite prints, and it's super soft and like... My other one I have taken apart and recovered like three different times. So just really glad to like actually have a new one. <laughs> I feel like the other one's lived Amazing. its life. Yeah, it's just a little little bit of joy in my week. How about you? What sparked joy for you? Cute. Well, my friend Emily is visiting from Auckland. So that's really lovely. She arrived on, when did she arrive? Friday? Thursday. Thursday night. <laughs> so we spent thursday together and then most of friday and then she's gone to a wedding and she's back tomorrow night but yeah first try out of our guest room which is also where i record but yeah it's just so nice to see her and she's like decided to move to london soon so it's just another friend that's moving to london you know i thought being older i would lose less friends to the oe but no no i'm having three friends move to london within the next six months so it's just like how dare you just because i did my oe 10 years ago (laughs) But yeah, so it's nice to spend time with her and we binge watched Why Women Kill, which was amazing. So yeah, Lucy Liu, you know, love her. Yeah, I do love Lucy Liu as well. She's great. Okay. So you'd recommend that show? Yeah, I really, we haven't finished it yet. We've got two episodes left, but I've really been intrigued. Every time I think I know where it's going, it changes and you're like, oh, what is happening? So it keeps you guessing, which is interesting. And that's three different storylines sort of told across different generations. So one's in the 50s, one's in the 80s, and one's like modern time. So it's quite interesting and like different style and fashion and stuff. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I keep seeing that pop up on whatever streaming service it's on and going, ooh, I should check that out. Yeah, so that was a fun Thursday, Friday, just chilling. Oh, and it's nice to see Auk Emily. Are you really glad you didn't move to Auckland like she kept pestering you to now that she's leaving you for London? I would never <laughs> move to Auckland. That was never even a risk. I would just, apologies to the Aucklanders, but it is objectively the worst city. Isn't this a long-standing beef between Wellington and Auckland? Like, there's just some, like, history here. All the Wellingtonians in Melbourne. Yeah, but then Melbourne's terrible, so that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I see, I agree. But then people say, because I love Wellington, I should love Melbourne, but I just don't see it. The reason I don't like 
Auckland is because it's a budget Sydney. If you're going to live in Auckland, you might as well just live in Sydney, which has better weather. Like if mm. you're going to, it has all the same pain points, the traffic, the issues that Sydney has, and Sydney is just the better city. So just go live in Sydney. I don't understand why you're in Auckland. It doesn't make sense to me. And I love Sydney, so I'm just like I don't, I don't want a bar of this budget city. <laughs> I love Sydney too. Part of me wonders if it's really that great of a city or if it's just like my first place that I lived that wasn't where I was from. Like it wasn't anywhere in Oregon. So I'm like, no, it's so great. I love all of this stuff. And like, I'm more willing to stick with the problems because it's like somewhere I get to live. That's not where I'm Mm. from. But all Sydney's have their issues, right? It's just what you're willing to put up with. And with Sydney, I just think I just, the joy I experience when I see the Harbour Bridge and the Mm. The sparkling waters and the beaches and all of the vibes are just always immaculate. Yeah, so agreed. I'm willing to put up with it. And every time I'm in Melbourne, I'm like, oh, I hate this city so much. <laughs> like when I was there for Christmas, and I'm like, I'm going to spend a day in Melbourne. And I was in Melbourne's CBD and I'm like, oh, that's right. I hate it. <laughs> There's not much to do unless you like really enjoy coffee or bars or what's whatever sport they really love down there. There's like one sport that they're all mad for. AFL. Yeah, I was like one of the footies. But that it doesn't seem like there's much else to do. Or the markets, I guess. But like Sydney has good markets too. So eh, shrug. Yeah, I just spent the whole day in the gallery, which was delightful because they've got this wonderful Alexander McQueen exhibition on at the moment. And I just recently watched oh. the documentary about Alexander McQueen. So it was like, perfect. That would be perfect. That sounds good. That's a great way to spend a, an afternoon in Melbourne proper. Hmm. <laughs> Well, anyway, this week we're reading chapters 7 to 13 through the theme of commitment. Did you have a story about commitment for us? I do. Um, and to, like, literally no one's surprised, I'm going to talk about having kids, which is the biggest commitment you can make, I think. Mm, yep. And one that you and I have both, we've talked about this a lot. We've talked about how we wish people would think about how much of a commitment it is before they have kids, because a lot of people really don't mm-hmm. consider what they're getting into. But I also wanted to kind of discuss it through the lens of how it's a choice that we keep making and about how it's a process. So unlike having a job or being in a relationship, like when you have kids, it's like pretty much forever. I mean, there are obvious things that can happen. You could like lose a child or when your child grows up, they could become estranged. Like that's those are things that have happened. But I mean, when you have a baby and you're like planning for it and thinking about it, you're not thinking about that. You're like, right, this is for the rest of their life and the rest of mine. Um, and look, I've always been really good at committing to things. Like I love committing to the bit. I love committing things to memory. <laughs> I am committed to being the best little retail worker that I could ever be in any job I've ever had. But I've had the benefit of being, being able to like shed things that no longer serve me as well. So as soon as I'm done, I'm like committed to being done. And it doesn't really bother me that like I've changed. I'm just like, nope, okay, that was it. The season has passed. Mm-hmm. That works super well for me because, you know, I have ADHD, so I have a very short attention span, but you can't really do that with kids. And so the day that I woke up, and it really did feel like it happened overnight, I woke up and I was like, oh, I want to start a family. I want to have kids. And then I was like, oh, I am going to have to reframe everything about the way that I live my life. Having kids had always been this, like, someday idea, like, we were going to start in our 30s, but when I was like 25, it was literally the only thing I could think about. And it was just such a big deal. It's such a big deal. And you can't stop once you started, like you don't get breaks. You don't get to not be a parent for a weekend. You're always on in a way that is just not possible to like leave. So I had to be really, really sure. And so I took a year and got myself really, really sure. It took a lot of work and it wasn't even about like convincing myself that I could do it because I've seen a lot of lackluster people become really great parents and like more than a few great people become super lackluster parents to be fair. I knew I was capable, but I wanted to make sure that I was going to do it like the best that I could. So I was like Mm -hmm. committed to having kids, but also to like 
spending all of this time thinking about the kind of parent I wanted to be and like who I wanted to be as a person and like what my values really were. And like by the time I had my daughter, I'd read around a million pages and I had like super nailed down these values and the things that I wanted to embody as a person for the rest of my life. And a lot of that was just like firming up things that I'd been working toward anyway. Mm -hmm. But I felt very much like the outlier forming this really deep commitment to do the best I could. Anyway, all my prep work turned out to be really good because I did not just get the run of the mill kids. My kids are limited edition, totally incredible humans who just happen to have very complex needs that rarely lined up with any of the milestones that the other kids their age were meeting. This isn't a story about that. Like I've always been really candid about their neurodivergence. It's not really the point here, but it did hit home one of the things that people don't think about before they have kids, which is that sometimes those kids are forever. Like they're forever with you as your kids. So I think most parents think they get like 18 or 20 years with their kids and then they go off and they start living their own lives with these occasional intersections afterward. Like, oh, maybe they come home after college for a little while and then they find their feet. But I have two kids who I'm not sure they'll ever live independently. Like I'm not sure that they'll ever be able to leave home. Or if my older child, if she is able to leave home, it might not happen at the same timeline that her peers do. She might be 30 before she feels comfortable living on her own and my son might never get there and that's fine and I think once I realized that I actually was like really settled in myself because the commitment to parenting itself that's not scary for me it was actually really scary for me to think about having to force them to be ready to fit this like societal idea of when they would leave home and once I was able to let go of that and reframe it I was like oh I can just keep being a parent as long as they need like it's going to be different all the time I have to keep being in conversation with them but it doesn't mean that I have to follow like a set of rules that don't apply to us so it was really interesting to me that like I'm not committing to a certain outcome but I am committing to still being the best parent I can be and however that looks and however long that takes I'm, I'm here for it when they're ready to go if they're ready I'll, I'll be there to help them and if they're not then that's okay they've always got a place with me it's just a really interesting idea that you would have kids and then wait until you quote get your life back but I wanted to have kids so that I didn't have to like not have kids anymore I wanted to be a parent so that I would be turning that page forever and that was like a commitment I was super willing to make and it's one I've never regretted but it does mean that I have to think about this a lot and have conversations about it and think about the choices each and every day it's an ongoing commitment but it's also a lot of growth and opportunity for change as we go Oh, it's a lovely story. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's interesting how you framed it that people sometimes think, oh, it's just for 18 years and then I can get my life back. Mm. Like it's almost a compromise. Like, okay, I can have the kids and then I can go back to normal, quote unquote yeah. normal. Yeah. But I, I also think it's interesting that you've mentioned that a lot of your stress was coming through thinking about how you're going to force your kids to conform and how you're going to force them to meet these societal expectations. It's something that we talk about a lot in my other podcast that I do with my mate Sophie, Titus yeah. of One's Own, everyone. Highly recommend. Um, but about the idea how so much of our unhappiness in life and our discontent comes from trying to fit into boxes that we don't choose and who chose them like why yeah. do they exist we're always trying to meet these expectations expectations are a theme of the novel yeah. but they're not yours you've been told to have these expectations by mm. some nameless face and normally the only one who benefits from that is capitalism or the patriarchy so yeah it's quite a revolutionary act to say actually i'm not going to do that i'm not going to fit this box i'm going to just make my own path like it's difficult but I think it's very worthwhile and you'll be happier ultimately for it oh absolutely and I will say that it helped a lot to have a good community of other special needs parents around me uh particularly my friend Jill who has an adult son with down syndrome who lives with him and her her ability to just like make any situation humorous and like 
matter of fact was so valuable at a time when I was like really deep in the weeds of like, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, I sort of had these toddlers who weren't talking and communicating or making eye contact. And she was like, oh yeah, well, when Declan was six, he used to go and pretend to blow people up as he walked past him. Got him, bum. And that was as much as he would say. And it was hilarious. And I'm just like, oh, Right. Like I can actually take this joy and delight in my kids as they are. I don't have to worry and fret all the time. Um, And that just flowed on through to having a much better perspective around what it actually Mm. means to parent. Because you get what you get and you just have to go with it. Yeah, and there's no guarantee. I think a lot of people, and we've spoken about this as well, I think people have kids with the expectation that, oh, they'll care for me when I get older or I'm going to have a kid and they're going to be my best friend. But you have no guarantee that you're going to get on with your kids, that you're even going to like your kid, right? Like there's just no guarantee that that's going to happen. It's just, I mean, it's a big commitment. Yeah, and the best you can do is love them and just try to help them become the best person they can be and be receptive to who they are. It's not a commitment to make a little miniature you it's a commitment to love someone into being their best self I think yeah I agree but that's not intuitive sometimes (laughs) it can be really tricky but yeah kids are great don't have them unless you want them (laughs) for sure be committed so um I'll do our chapter summary shall I thank you that would be lovely in this section, Agatha is at now next conference seminar slash retreat as a favour to her mate Ginger, but she's bored and annoyed. Brayden, the founder, takes a special interest in her, which is even more annoying. But whatever, maybe there's cupcakes. Meanwhile, Penny, Baz and Simon land in Chicago. Penny is excited to see Micah, but it turns out he broke up with her or tried to a long time ago. And he has a normal girlfriend. And then she accidentally tries to steal his mom's dog. While Penny is being dealt this terrible blow, Baz teaches Simon how to drive a manual. It's very cute and lovely. What is with these children and stealing other people's dogs? <laughs> Penny is just on a one-woman crime spree. This dog is just like the smallest of her transgressions. She is so far nicked a passport. They're illegally driving a rented car. None of them are 25, and you have to be 25 to rent a car in most places. Oh, wow. Okay, did not know that. Yep. Um, and now she's tried to walk off with a Pomeranian, and Pomeranians are not cheap dogs. They cost a bit of money. Yeah, it's just a one-woman crime spree. I kind of want to get, like, last last time we did Assignment Snowbook, we had the opinions. And I'm like, what are her felony charges? That's what I'm paying attention to this time around. Her rap sheet at the <laughs> exactly, end of this. Exactly, the penny rap sheet. Oh, my goodness. Um, but, yeah, I don't even think she cared that much about the dog. Cause she was like, I'm only holding it because it looked like it wanted to be held, not because I wanted to pick up a dog. And I was just thinking, like, we've all been there where, like, someone's pet is like, pay attention to me. And you're like obligation okay i thought that was denial on her part i thought she was like i need an emotional support companion because i'm stressed out Mm. by this and so i'm just gonna pick up this dog and this dog is gonna make me feel better but i can't be honest about that i can't be honest about my own feelings because i feel like deep down she knew that the thing with micah was over but she couldn't face it right that's why she had to see him in person she had to have this conversation because she's so deep in denial she's very committed to her narrative about what's happening i have a question about micah do you think he was actually committed to breaking up with her or was he just trying to like hope that it faded out i think he tried to have a conversation with her maybe once or twice and she just wasn't receptive and then he was like ah if this i'm out yeah which i can kind of see how you could get there you know just be like yeah, she's oh, well. all the way over and then she didn't call him for two yeah she doesn't call him for two months he's like maybe she got the memo finally right yeah it just seems like at some point he could have actually said like we're breaking up or i'm breaking up with you or i've met someone else or like there's a number of phrases you could use that would kind of get through to her and he didn't say any of them because she remembers all their conversations and he was like i told you i was tired of being in a long distance relationship but she's like and i agreed it was tiring and it's like classic penny not being able to see the forest for the trees 
But also, how much did he really try? I do feel like it's a commitment on her part to just see the side that she wants to see. Like, she's only (laughs) seeing there what she wants to see, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I agree. He could have been better communicating. I think it's just expectations. Like, he expects her to behave a certain way. She certainly has an expectation that if she has a plan, she can just will it into existence, right? Just through sheer force. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Once she's like in a plan, it's going to go that way, whether anyone else likes it or not. And then she has to really confront that no matter how committed she is to being Micah's girlfriend, which mentally as like a thing that she has ticked off of a box, like she's got this thing on her life list or whatever, be a girlfriend tick. She's done that. That's how she's like committed to it in the way that she's like solved a math problem, but she's not committed to it as like a process. So I think that there's, there's the difference there in like her level of commitment to him versus the idea of having. Yeah. I think there was definitely commitment between them when they were still at school. Like they were long distance. They were communicating via letter and email. Mm. They Skype, they FaceTimed, you know, they spoke on the phone sometimes. She said all of this on page 29. So there is a commitment there for them. Yeah. And I think Micah thinks she's not committed to actually being with him because at the end of high school, she was sort of like, oh, well, you know, we'll sort it out later. Like he understands that my commitment to Simon comes first, which for him is really hard to take. Right. And I just think she then sees his behavior as a lack of commitment to their future because she's like, this is just how it is. Like, and I love that he says on page 53, a relationship isn't about the end. It's about being together every step of the way, because this is a realization that we'll see Simon make in any way the wind blows yeah, as well the expectation of just having sorted it because everyone else has it sorted by the end of the eighth year at Watford right like that was a big theme in the last book like you want to know who you're getting married to so that you don't have to think about it because if you don't pair up now you'll end up being single and 30 going on magical tours of Britain trying to find someone to date like it's a whole thing with her that she's already sorted this out but there's no emotional resonance yeah and I think it's a mistake loads of people make in real life as well right this is why a lot of relationships fall apart because you tick the box you think you're in a relationship and then you're like okay and you just don't do anything else but it takes continual commitment you need to recommit all the time right and work on it and like be willing not willful about how the relationship is going hmm I think Penny and Baz are so committed to Simon. Like, Penny obviously prioritizes Simon over her own relationship. Like, she's like, I'm going to stay with Simon. I can't leave Simon. Like, he's shattered. Can't leave him alone. And she says he was more alone than ever. Which I think I'd quite like to unpack, because I think Simon's been alone all along. And if anything, he's got Baz now Mm -hmm. at the end of that. Someone who was actually genuinely in his corner in a way that he never really had anyone before, other than Penny. So maybe it would have been good to leave him. But he doesn't see Baz as being in his corner in the way that he sees Penny as being in his corner, No. There's just, like, an implicit trust between him and Penny that he knows that she is upset. At the very end of the section, he's like, I can sense that Penny doesn't want to talk about it. I can sense that something happened. All I can do is guess at it, but I'm leaving her alone because she wants to be left alone. Like, they know each other so well. And I think that Penny's love for Simon is, like, the first and foremost love of her life. And that may not actually be a bad thing that she cares more for Simon than she did for Micah. Because Micah's fine. He's got a support system. Like, he doesn't actually need Penny. And she doesn't need him. And she's only now just kind of going to realize that. Because, you know, he he says to her, the story about your mom laying eyes on your dad and knowing that they would get married is hardly anybody. And she's like, he's right. How mortifying. She had just taken this narrative for herself. But with Simon, she actually feels this genuine connection. And I think he's alone because he can't really be part of her family. And Baz isn't very good at being like, we're forever. I'm here for you. Don't worry about it. I will always love you. He's just really bad at the words. <laughs> he's so bad at the words. Yeah, he can't, he can't express himself, right? But I do think he's always, even though Simon doesn't necessarily see it, or he does in a weird way, and he thinks that's the reason why he should break 
break up with Baz, but Baz does prioritize Simon over his own well-being all the time. And in this section, yeah. what really stood out to me is how he looks for excuses to touch him. Like when they're doing yeah. the cu- like the driving lessons, right? He's like putting his hand on his, and mm. then putting his hand on his shoulder and like leaning across him. He's looking for these reasons yeah. to be close to him and even pretending to be asleep on the plane. Yeah, just like cuddling up to him and having that proximity and wanting to be near him. But that's, I mean, you can do that platonically. I think that he needs to know that he's actually wanted, not just because he once was good, but because he's who he is all the way through. And I don't think Baz has been very good about saying that. Like, Simon has this expectation now that he's not the chosen one, that he's worthless. Yeah, but I also feel like Baz is trying to show me he just doesn't know how. Yeah. Like, he just doesn't know how to do it. And he's trying. Like, when he says to him in the car, you know, there's this expectation of what Simon thinks Baz is going to do. And he's like, why are you being nice to me? Mm. You know, when I, I was actually good at something, you were always mean to me. But now that I'm, you know, messing up. And Baz just says, you're learning. It's fine. Like, he, Simon doesn't see that Baz doesn't actually care if he makes mistakes, if he messes up. Like, he is, that is irrelevant to Baz, right? And yeah. I wish that Simon could pick up with Baz is putting down yeah. they're just not communicating <laughs> yes. on the same wavelength at all yeah it's a fundamental misunderstanding but I completely see both sides of it I see Baz being like well it's obvious I'm in love with you I spend all my time with you and Simon being like well it's obvious he feels sorry for me because he's still around and I'm a mess and I know what kind of person he likes and historically he's hated my guts <laughs> so it just feels like they're both holding on to this idea of what they should be and what they were and like they're unable to sort of say actually this is who I really am Mm. it's really hard I just want them to sit down and talk properly I do love that line on page 45 when Baz says you know I grew up at the top of the tower with you like he's always reaching for Simon you know yeah yeah so beautiful that line they did grow up together but yeah these chapters hurt me um so I have a question for you Mm -hmm. do you think that Simon was not committed to therapy or do you think that he was scared because the expectation was that it would be something he could manage and he backed out of it like what do you think is going on there i thought it was a lack of commitment this was my initial thought was like you know it's a lack of commitment to getting better yeah because i think in a lot of ways having been in a position like that where it's easier to be in the pain than trying to face a future where you're not because at least now you know what you are yeah you know you know what you are in that moment um but i also just think he doesn't know how like he doesn't know who he is he doesn't he's having such an identity crisis and then there's this trauma as well Mm. and he's like actually i just um i'm just gonna opt out of this right now. he really does nope out of it and i wonder if i feel like the therapist should have chased him up a bit more (laughs) i feel like followed up yeah yeah. i feel like when i had a couple of really sticky moments like that in talk therapy my my first therapist nisha who was amazing she backed right off and then like she just came at it from another way but she took like time in between so it wasn't we're gonna keep going with this we're gonna go hard it was like next week we didn't bring it up at all and i just nattered on about like whatever and i'm wondering if that would have helped just as a like tangent I guess not really about commitment but yeah. the expectation that he had to keep going in this really hard way of unpicking his trauma which is really hard for a lot of people um it kind of feels like he, he felt like there wasn't another choice yeah yeah I agree and I've actually asked Frank this because you know, friend of the pod mm. Frank he is a therapist and I was like if someone like previously unrelated to this but it's just reminded me I've asked him if someone stops coming what do you do do you like follow up um and he said, yeah, but you wouldn't like you'd give them a little bit of a breather and then just check in and see how they're going and see if they want to come back. And if they enforce their boundaries, then fine. Like sometimes people are yeah. just not going to want to come back and maybe you can refer them to someone else. Yeah. 
Yeah, but to just like not follow up feels like bad form. Yeah, I think that the therapist was in the US. I think that's if, if I remember correctly. So they were on different sides of the ocean, which is really hard to like. I find phone therapy sometimes is hard. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we just had a pandemic. So that's what I did for two years. But yeah, I, I really felt for him. I thought all of that on, on page 38, especially when he said, I can remember that things were bad, but not specifically why. Trauma affects memory. My therapist said, your brain just closes, closes off painful quarters. That sounds good to me. I told her, thank you, brain. I was like, yep, I've definitely been there. I've definitely felt like, ah, yes, I've solved this problem. I'll just never think about it again. It'll be fine. Just commit to never having that memory again in my life. That's okay. Yeah, put it in a box, dissociate, never unpack it. Problem solved. Perfect. It's gone. Goodbye. (laughs) Trauma solved. Next. I also think people are, well, I think Agatha doesn't want to commit to anything, Mm -hmm. especially the now next, which I think she rightly sees as a cult, right? Like, and people are really committed to now next, like with the things they're doing, like living in a neighborhood and this weird, intense cleansing thing they do. And, but you know, the root of Agatha's reluctance to commit to anything and her cynicism is her trauma that she's experienced at the hands of, you know, being this princess that has to be rescued all the time, but also this trauma she experienced at the end of the last book, like she says on page 33, it reminds me of the mage which reminds me of that night on the tower and ebb i stand up i tell ginger that i'm going to find a bathroom but i just want to get away like that intense fight or flight that reminds Mm -hmm. you that your trauma puts you in because you haven't processed it you haven't moved on yeah you can't look at it from outside of it you're still in it you just have to get out of that awfulness and the only way she can cope is to just like not care like she can't engage with her emotions Mm -hmm. she can't think about anything she has to kind of be cynical and dissociate a little bit yeah. What does she say? Cynicism saves lives. I do love that. Like, it also means you don't pay enough attention to get out of a bad situation ahead of time, Agatha. But it's such a great line, page 35. <laughs> there are so many things that will never kill me because I wouldn't be caught dead doing them. I'm like, it me. <laughs> like, that is 100% me. Per our conversation about not swimming in the ocean, because why would you swim in the ocean? That just sounds like a bad idea. That's not where I live. I also love that she says, thanks, I've just got out of a cult. I'm not looking for a rebound cult. (laughs) And it is such a cult. And he's like, we're not a cult. Do you think the Catholic Church is a cult? And she's immediately like, yes, I do. And then she's like, that's a made up word. And Brayden is a made up name. (laughs) She's so mean to him. But she keeps, this is the thing, she's so mean to him, but she keeps giving him time. She doesn't shut him down immediately. She's like feeling it out to see what's going to happen. But it's almost like she's detached from it. Like, mm. she's not committed yeah, to yeah, it, yeah. but, like, it's happening and she expects it to happen. So, like, she might as well go along to a point. But she's not emotionally engaged with it at all. No. And she never is in any any part of this book. Like, she's never in love with him or, like, into him, really. She's just going along on this, like, weird little journey because she's at this retreat, right? So what else is she supposed to do? Yeah, dude, get out of there, man. The vibe is off. I think it's interesting how her expectations are constantly subverted. Like she has expectations about this retreat, right? Like, and then she thinks, she says to Ginger, I don't know why you're unpacking. You'll be staying with Josh. And she's like, nah, only members in that wing of the house that you're stuck with me. So that's a subversion of what she thought was going to happen. She thinks she's just going to be bored, but then she ends up really irritated and annoyed and like triggered by this seminar. And then when he traps her in in the room, you know, she says men always trying to trap you alone, but that's not what he's trying to do. So that's the expectation but then he doesn't do it yeah he actually doesn't shut the door and try and crowd her and try and press an advantage yeah yeah 
And I love that he says to her, you know, you don't seem impressed when he's told her that he's the founder. And she's like, I know the type. Cause she's like, chosen ones are a dime a dozen. <laughs> like, it's interesting to me how her, yeah, it's like she has expectations that are constantly subverted. And you're right. She's just not emotionally engaged with it. Yeah. It's just like she can't see the red flags because everything is red. Because she's just seen so much yeah. red. And it's interesting how she continually, she's always tried to buck the expectations put on her. Like, we know she chafed against it and carry on. And we get a little bit more of that right now when she's trying to light that cigarette yeah. right and she says a rare talent i carefully avoided once i saw how much it pleased my mother she's like i'm not gonna do it i'm not buying into this whole magical expectation thing which is the opposite of penny who like when micah says it's only part of my identity penny goes that's utter nonsense first and foremost you're a mage the rest is just nonsense yeah. it, it doesn't matter the mage is the most important magic is the most important part which would be really hard for simon yeah 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 and this is why he struggles with both bears and penny i think because they're so committed to mm. magic like they're talking about the reversal spell they're talking about the unicorn taste they talk like even agatha with this wandless magic is a little bit of commitment to mm -hmm. magic right because it's so ingrained in them mm -hmm. and again we see that expectation of how magic works right and how it's different now in the u.s versus the uk mm. And Penny says, you know, sometimes foreign families send their kids to Watford and her mum says because no one offers a magical foundation like we do. And, you know, they're sort of horrified by how these American majors live their yeah. lives. It's like people who go to really prestigious schools who get a homeschooled kid in there and they're like, what? 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 Did you learn things at home? How do you do that? I don't understand if it didn't cost $47,000 a year. <laughs> But it is really similar. Penny's very snobbish about magic. Like, she does think that normals are not as important. And she does think that magic is the most important thing about magicians. Yeah, she's definitely prejudiced. And that's why I think Simon is not wrong to be fearful of the fact that he doesn't have his magic. Yeah. That she will also eventually just shun him, right? Like, this is one of the things that he resents. It's this fear. It's a real fear that he has. But he can't articulate it. He doesn't know how committed to him Penny really is. He doesn't know how committed to their friendship she really is. If he's not who and he I used feel to like, be. Yeah. And I feel like Penny doesn't even realize that she's being prejudiced. Like, she's one of those classic, I'm not racist, <laughs> but, like, I'm not prejudiced against normals, but they're just worse than everyone else. <laughs> oh she's, you know? like, the worst, but I also love her so much that I'm just like, Penny, no. You, no. Mm. I just really want to sit her down and be like, okay, we're going to talk about this. Here's your workplace intervention. And I think like, you know, once we meet Shepard later, she does have to interrogate those beliefs. And we see that in any way the wind blows as well, where she suddenly has to confront these parts of her that she didn't even know she really had. Oh, because Shep is um, just so open. I can't wait till we meet Shep. Like, yeah. honestly, he's the light of my heart in this book. And he makes everything so much more interesting because he just wants to talk and have a conversation and be everyone's friend. I think the way that Penny is committed to a plan and committed to like the superiority of magic, mm. Baz is really committed to propriety and the way yeah. like social niceties and social standards. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, when he's thirsty and Simon says to him, you know, why don't you, you know, you're thirsty. And he's like, I know what you meant. I'm not going to have you hunting in the suburbs at midday. Like he's almost horrified to be talking about it in the first place and to even entertain this yeah. idea. And like, he won't ask for help. He won't say how he's really feeling because he's too stoic for that. That is not proper Step up or to lip. do that. Yeah. You know? Just on the sort of a similar vein, the the Prince Harry book came out this week or last week or whatever, and almost all mm -hmm. of the commentary is like people who are clutching their pearls at how dare you talk about this stuff publicly. And the, the other half of it is like, we've already heard this because we saw all of the other interviews. But it's just really funny that those are the two angles that people are taking. Like, A, we've already heard all of this already, and B, how could you? And it just reminded me, like, Baz would be absolutely horrified if somebody did the same thing. Like, talking about all of the secrets of the family, we just don't do that. That's not how 
how it's done. Which is another great thing about this book because we see Baz really wrestle with that because he has to. Like, he's laid so low in this, he has no choice but to really be vulnerable. Mm. And then he starts to come out of his shell as a result of that. Yeah. But he also finds someone who can help him, which is the first time that anyone has, like, met him on his level. And that has got to suck. Because, like, when the one person that you see representation is a literal villain, like, you just... Yeah. How does that mess with And you've always thought that you were a villain. Yeah. 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 Oh, anyway, that's that's future future weeks of, of the pod. I love that Micah is not actually excited to see Penny, but she expected that he would be. There are so many little bits where she's like, he's not happy? Oh, that's strange. And... I'm just going to wait till he's not angry so it's not a big deal when he realizes he's not angry. Like, she's really coaching herself to expect things that are not actually happening. Yeah, and I feel like she's not picking up signals. Like, her mu- his mum opens the door, right? And he, she's like, Penelope, mm. how nice to see you. And you can just imagine. And she's like, oh, she seems nervous. And you can just imagine what's going through this woman's head as she opens the door. And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> It's and then obviously Micah's girlfriend knows all about Penny. Yeah, so. I think if you're dating Penny and you, Penny hasn't stopped dating you, you kind of have to let whoever you're dating now know that like, I have tried, but it has not stuck. So we may have to deal with this person for a while. Also, like he's saying to her, don't come to Chicago, just go straight to San Diego. And she's like, no, we'll just stop off. And then she's like, well, we were here anyway. And he's like, this is not California. And they just have this expectation of travel mm. and this road trip in America. Yeah. And they just don't. Micah was trying to tell them yeah. that it's not just a hop, skip, jump over to San Diego. Yeah, from it's here. 31 hours. This cracks me That's up. so funny to me. I love that line. They let Penny plan this, knowing what kind of person Penny is, who will just will an outcome into existence, right? Why didn't Baz think to check? Baz should have checked before they did this. He should have been like, What's our contingency plan if Micah doesn't want to go with us? Her being like, how was I to know that all these middle states are each the size of France? I've never even heard of Nebraska. (laughs) Which we love a Nebraska reference. I find it hard to believe that she doesn't know how big America is. Like, she's got a good British education. Well, maybe Watford doesn't teach geography. I don't know. They probably bend it along with, like, drama. Mm. Why would you need to know about geography anywhere else? They're so Britain-centric. And the mage actively discouraged fraternizing with other countries and traveling to other countries, right? Because of the way magic works. Like, that reversal spell is stronger in, in the States because it's a, yeah. an American song. There's a lot about the world building in this that I think is just so good. You should get Sophie to read them because I want to hear her thoughts on the world building. Because I know she's a world hmm. building fiend. Yeah, she just doesn't like YA. It's hardly YA. They're barely kids. They're like 18 in the first book. It's fine. <laughs> it's college age. Agatha's 19. That's like a young adult, but like not a, a young adult. That's not like a teen, babe. You know what I mean. We can talk around. But yeah, I, I just feel like the world building has so many beautiful things to offer. But the way that magic works in this society and how they have to find spells that can possibly do it. And they have to work with both intent and like well-known phrases and location as part of that. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And even, you know, Penny, when she's talking about Micah in that first mm. chapter about him, she says, you know, oh, he speaks Spanish, but that only works in Spanish speaking parts yeah. or countries or whatever and it's like I feel like they know this and yet they're still shocked when they get to America and their magic doesn't work right like Braz can barely cast because he doesn't know anything that's not English because <laughs> he's like from 1950 it's too posh <laughs> whereas I think if, if Simon still had his magic he would be cracking on with it because he loves those American action movies he watched like eight of them on the plane he would know what to say and he plays a lot of video games mm. and yeah yeah he'd be great I also wanted to just 
point out how much he loves the scenery. Like he's looking at Baz and he's like, Baz is looking so great. I almost want to look only at him, but there's also so much else to see. And he's like excited about the massive roads and he's excited about all the billboards and like everything is so big and everybody has huge cars and he's just so happy to be there. Really broke my heart when he said on page 42, I'm glad I haven't broken, we haven't broken up yet because then Mm. I never would have got to see it when he's looking at Baz in the car. And it's just like... He's just so convinced of the ending. Like, he's convinced himself this is the only way. He's committed to he just expects, the breakup. Yeah, committed to it. Yeah, yeah. And expects it, right? Expects that of his life. Yeah. Because he even says, you know, when he sees the car, if the kids in the care homes could see me now. Like, he still has a lot of expectations of what his life was going to be and also what it is. And he just doesn't see a life with, if he's honest with himself, Penny or Bears in it. It hurts, Jen. Mm. It hurts. Did you have anything else for um, expectation or commitment? I think that was it. I just had these, like, Micah's expectations of how Penny is going to behave, right? When he says on page 50, 53, I tried. I'd have better luck talking to a tornado. You are a tornado. I thought that was really hurtful. Yeah. There are ways when you're talking to difficult people to get them to listen. I am a difficult person and people often have to figure out the way. And they do. And, like, it doesn't take that much effort. Micah. He's putting all of the blame on her, but I think that it's very equally shared that she wasn't willing to listen, but he wasn't willing to really communicate. Because he just expected her not to listen, so he's like, what's the point? If you really want to make your point, get your point across, you can do it. Um, I think that's all I had. Did you have any tangential marginalities? Ooh, I do. I have a couple. Um, I want to point out the bit on page 50 where Penny's in the soothing oatmeal-colored house of Micah's parents, and she's talking about how, like, the rooms are massive and everything is beige or tan or cream. (laughs) And, like, she says on page 50, My house is every color, none of them planned, and our furniture is whatever color it was when my father spotted it at a yard sale. Also, our house has stuff everywhere. And then she goes on to say that Micah's house probably has stuff, but it's all tucked away, and, 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 like, you just don't see it. And there's, like, plenty of room for everything. And I, as a person who is in a tiny house and a magpie, really feel that. I've been having this conversation with my sister who she lives with my parents still and my parents are the kind of people who don't get rid of stuff and like acquire more stuff and everything is like stuffed in little areas so and they also don't like their house isn't finished my dad's been building it for like 20 years so my sister's been living there for her whole life kind of like out of her brain with all of the clutter and the mess and she just wants like the dentist office house she wants everything to be white and clean and put away and I was like ah because I really like having color and artwork and decorations and like I love having my space be a little bit jumbly. It's just really interesting that I read this and I was like, oh, I see Penny wants to have the white dentist office space just like my sister Janica does. <laughs> Whereas I, I am the jumble sale. I'm like, oh, look at this. I found it on Gumtree. <laughs> I think, yeah, because Penny is so ordered and she makes a plan for everything, right? So this would just be a, a physical mm. external manifestation of that to have everything ordered yeah but that said like even my bedroom is beige because i did need one room in the house that was like neutral because every other room is colorful so i was like i just gotta have one space where i can rest my eyes and they not like vibrate (laughs) so yeah just that was one of my favorites is that i love that she was kind of like oh my gosh it's so different i love the calming muted tones of the american suburbs um did you have any tangential yeah i had a couple i i love that the vested members of the now next wear little gold pins like little figures of eight mm. as agatha describes them they're eternity symbols yeah. they're so unsubtle 
They're such jerks. I loathe them. Um, I love that Simon describes Agatha's hair as butter blonde in her memory. Yeah. And like Simon's butter obsession. Butter blonde hair. Lolzies. Um, I love the description on page 37 that Baz had of Simon saying, Snow looks like he hasn't been plugged into the charger for a while. Yeah. I thought that was such an accurate description of someone who's just going through it, who's just depressed on every level. Mm. Like, yeah, you are just faded. And I love how Penny and Baz just bicker all the time about everything. Like, page 40. He's sufficiently angelic for the purposes of the spells. Penny says, magic understands metaphor. Thank you, Bunce. I also completed first year (laughs) magical theory. And how he's like, they're sustainably farmed. Shut up, Bunce. It was sustainably farmed. And she's like disgusted that he's drinking unicorns at some point. And he's like, they're only capable of small talk. It's not like eating a dolphin. That made me laugh so much because I think dolphins are jerks. I think they're jerks. And I think if you had to drink a dolphin Aww. over a unicorn i would suggest doing that dolphins are mean i don't agree i love a dolphin <laughs> but what i do love is that bears and simon go driving and then they're like we don't know where this house yeah. is and all these houses look the same and then these simon's like was it a green one i don't see a green one that one there surely that's tan like they're just arguing about house colors cracks me up because american suburbs are very strange it is like that when my best friend and her husband built a house they built it in a subdivision that had like really specific house colors that you couldn't couldn't put on the outside of your house like the hoa nightmare stuff and i was just like you mean you don't get a pick like you have to choose from a list like you don't absolutely you don't just not. get to paint your house purple like i don't it's shocking to me and it was hard to find my way around like i had to know where i was in that little neighborhood because otherwise i would get lost and also because i was in idaho where all the streets are like very flat and that particular part of idaho was very mm. flat and square so it was just even trickier yeah so my homie and I were talking about American suburbs the other day because we were watching something and they showed like a shot of the American, like a, you know, a US suburb mm. somewhere. I don't know. And I was like, this is why pop punk bands always sing about leaving their suburban hometowns and how the conformity of it. But also, I don't know if you've ever seen Fright Night with Colin Farrell, Mm-mm. the remake. It's very good. Like, I don't do horror, but I really enjoyed it. And it's set in the suburbs of Las Vegas. And the way that everything just looks the same yeah. is unhinged to me. One of my cousin's lives in vegas and she loves it she says it's a great place to raise a family and i'm just like what but i can't imagine but like a lot of people do live there and really like it and it is like really family oriented once you get out of the the gambling line i guess Mm. it's just wild to me we can talk more about vegas in this book oh yeah we're going to vegas baby (laughs) vampire capital Um, of the usa that makes total sense i also I love the description that Simon has on page 59 of Baz's hair, where he says Baz's black hair whips around his face like a flame. Mm. Like, I love the image of that. But I also love the comparison of Baz and fire and how that always is a link that they make. But finally, the last one I want to say is just on page 46. um, Baz says of Simon, Simon Snow in America, jeans and white t-shirt, skin already pinking up from the Mm. sun. And it just gave me such a visceral memory of a song that I really like. It's from a band that I also really like. They're called the Gaslight Anthem. They're an American New Jersey band. Think kind of Bruce Springsteen vibes, working class New Jersey. They're like, if I think about Americana, they're the band I think about. Like they're so American, like old cars, blue jeans, white t-shirts. And they've got a song called Blue Jeans and White T-Shirts from an EP they did in I think 2008. The chorus of the song says, I'll love you forever if I ever love it all. Wild hearts, blue jeans and white t-shirts. And I just think that is so fast. And I remember the first time I read this book, I wrote it in the margins and it just like reminded me. Oh, I love that. Further on in the road trip, they listen to a lot of classic rock and it makes me happy what Simon's favorite songs are. And the ones that Baz (laughs) hates are like the ones that Simon loves the most. And I mean, that's just adorable because 
as someone who's married to a person who has very different taste in music, we do not, like my husband and I, the intersection of our musical tastes is like a very tiny, slender sliver of a Venn diagram. It's not a lot. So it cracks me up, but they just love and hate the same thing so much. <laughs> but yeah, I, something about the idea of going on a big road trip and the way that Penny gifted this amazing car to make this road trip she she did put it together quickly knowing that something was wrong with her and Micah's relationship she couldn't really put her finger on it couldn't think about it so she had to think around it knowing that something was going on with Simon and you know historically Agatha has been in trouble so maybe that's true <laughs> she's bending the truth a bit to make it work but I, I do love that she made sure that they got this amazing car which Baz immediately recognizes like oh, it's yeah. like a 68 Tahoe turquoise Tahoe that's it yeah, yeah. I think I had anything else. I do love that Agatha tells Brayden, you'll never be immortal now when he has a little bit of her cigarette. That cracked me up. Because, like, we know, we know that that's true. Mm. But not how the, how that's true. Um, I think that was it for my tangential. Mm. Did you have it in depth? I do. Um, so I'm going to focus on the bit on page 43, where Penny says, I decided to pretend Micah wasn't angry so that he could stop being angry at any moment without it being a big mm. thing. Um, so the context is she's on the phone with them telling him, I'm coming to Chicago. Uh, we need to, quote, save Agatha, who might need saving. It, it could be true. It has been true before. And Mike is really mad at her, but Penny's pretending he's not so that when he stops being mad, it's not something they have to have a conversation about. And this is, like, really indicative of their whole relationship that, like, he's feeling some kind of way and she's just pretending it's not happening so that she doesn't have to have a conversation about it. She's just waiting for him to stop feeling that kind of way so that it won't be a big deal when he finally feels the way he's supposed to. I think she expects things to be the way that they've always been. And in a way, she does have a real commitment to Micah, but it's not the genuine commitment of someone that she loves and wants to spend her life with. It's like somebody who's checked the box off of her to-do list, as we spoke about. Micah, of course, has other ideas. He hasn't really figured out how to tell Penny that he's not interested. He lets her know by just being cranky, enough for her to pick up on. Um, but she just pretends that things are going the way that they she wants them to go. She, she just ex decides her own expectations are what's happening and so her commitment is to this outcome but she forgets that it involves other people and I think that it's not mm. a really good way to live and I don't know why but this week I kept thinking about this reading and I was also thinking about Emily Dickinson and her relationship to her sister-in-law who was also her like longtime love Susan um, her brother Austin's wife Susan and it was a relationship that existed and it was a real commitment between the two of them. Like they were really in love and they wrote every day and she wrote hundreds of poems just for Sue. And like there's real documented evidence that their love was like sustained and long lasting and like really important to both of them. And it was a commitment, but they were completely excised from history because it wasn't expected that like she could love her sister-in-law that much in that way and like you know it took the scholarship of these dedicated scholars to like really unpack it and like put together a book which is called open me carefully and it's like all their letters back and forth to each other that actually like assesses and discusses and like frames that relationship and it just made me think like of penny and micah she was really excising the actuality of their relationship because it wasn't fitting with her expectations so it's a bit of a flip side so a bit like how everyone was willfully pretending that Emily and Susan were just good friends Penny just willfully pretends that Micah mm -hmm. is who she needs him to be she like makes it easy mm -hmm. for him but actually she's making it easy for himself 
for herself. Um, and I also think that in letting this go, she's aware that things aren't great, but she doesn't want to stir anything up. She doesn't want to change anything. So if she doesn't confront him being angry, she doesn't have to have that conversation, which she knows is coming. Mm. Um, so I think going forward, we all have a tendency to take existing relationships for granted, especially if we feel secure in them. But we can also be really scared or insecure or start to feel like we aren't as important in particular relationships as the person might be to us. So my best advice is to just ask for reassurance when you need it and be clear when things are a struggle and be receptive to those conversations and be willing to do what can be done and be kind because all of this is hard to navigate. Mm. It's all tricky. That's good advice. And yeah, asking for what you need and also just talking, communicating in your relationships, your friendships, any relationship is so important. And I think I definitely had a habit of doing what Penny did where you just pretended everything was fine mm. because that's what you needed. And so you were like, I'll just pretend this person is the person that I need them to be. And yeah. if they do something that doesn't agree with that, we'll just pretend that didn't happen, you know? And it makes you anxious and fretful and it just contributes to weird unhappiness. So communicating is really the best. And sometimes you really can't be in a position where you're willing to see that it's not great because you know that you aren't ready to have that conversation or you're too fragile or like it's just not somewhere you can get to on your own. And that's okay too. Yeah. And sometimes you have to wait to come back. Like you could be like, this relationship isn't for right now. Like it was fine. Yeah. And now it's no longer fine. And maybe you'll come back to it or maybe you don't. But, you know, just be honest about that. Yeah. Mm. So what about you? Did you have in-depth? Yeah, so mine's on page 31. It's when Agatha is at the Now Next retreat and she's just like gotten there and they've gone to a seminar, a talk, whatever, Mm. where they're talking about living forever and how it's basically just environmental factors that stop you from dying. Mm. And the quote is, page 31, I try to be bored by the talk, but I'm irritated. I'm irritated by everyone nodding along to this. I think it speaks to the theme of commitment because it shows the commitment from this Now Next lot to believe this. Like people want to believe, right? They want to believe that, yes, we can conquer death. Like we can do this thing. I can become functionally immortal by just eating activated almonds whatever an activated almond is and every time someone buys into some new fitness craze because it's gonna like prolong your life and i love that agatha has this memory of her dad just saying death is part of life and i can't cure life because it is the fundamental thing that i think as humans we try to ignore like the only way we can function in life is to believe that we're not gonna die like you can't think about it because otherwise you won't function right yeah you just have to keep moving yeah and people are always striving for immortality whether it's by creating art or doing other things or hoping that we can download our consciousness into a computer or whatever you know so i think that's a commitment from this now next lock to this cult that they're essentially in and i think it's also agatha's expectations of people's perceptions of reality like she's so frustrated that this is something that people believe that this is not real life but this is what they're responding to and that's where she gets irritated and angry I think it reminded me of my own life because I'm obviously a social media manager. I've moderated social media. And so I have seen this in action where people just believe things that are just abundantly not true, but they have just convinced themselves that this is the reality of it. And I do get really irritated. And just like Agatha, Agatha, I'm irritated by people nodding along to this because there's not just one, there's loads of them. And we see this in conspiracy theories or people just simply not seeing what's right in front of them. You can give them the evidence and I often did as a social mm. media manager, give people the evidence that said, actually, this thing that you're, you're saying, this is not yeah. true. And they don't care because it doesn't fit into the worldview that they've curated, right? Like, mm. and you know, I just was thinking about it because our prime minister resigned this week. And I think yeah. a big part of that is because she got like, she's obviously just tired, which by all means, totally fair. Like she's been through a lot, five years, five and a half years of just the worst possible <laughs> circumstances to lead a country through two terrorist attacks a volcanic eruption Mm. 
a global pandemic. It's just been a nightmare. And she had a baby in the middle of that. Like, holy crap. That is huge. Yeah, and... And she's a, a woman in politics, and the misogyny that I've seen firsthand has been horrific. Like, she's had more death threats against her than anyone else, and I think a big part of her decision-making would have been, like, her, her daughter is starting school. And yeah. you're thinking, wow, am I going to have to send security with her to school? Like, how will this affect her life? Because the death threats aren't just towards her, it's towards her partner, towards her children, towards her child, her parents. This horrible vitriol that has just been so horrific and relentless, because it comes from people who've just decided that this is the reality they see Mm. and it doesn't matter what she does the the real life that we operate in doesn't impact that because they've just made a decision and it makes me angry like Agatha I am irritated but I'm also furious about it but I can't do anything about it and going forward I think that's just what you have to decide like I can't change their opinions and I used to get so angry and so worked up about the fact that I couldn't change these people's minds despite the hours that I spent trying to do it and I just need to decide how I'm going to spend my energy. And is this arguing with people on the internet the way to do it? Is it a healthy way? Does that serve me? Does it serve anyone? No. So yeah. how will I spend my energy? Yeah, fair and call. going forward, just to remember that it's not your job to police other people's opinions of reality, even though it is irritating. Yeah. I mean, there's really nothing that can be gained from trying to get a stranger to look at your viewpoint when they're dug in the only way that we can sort of make any inroads is that is like people who are actually close to us and who are willing to argue in good faith and there there's there are actually a lot of resources on like my kid is now a right-wing nut job what do i do like there there are people out there who have laid out steps you can do as a person who cares about someone in your life who's going through a radicalization that you can talk to them and kind of help them to see but we shouldn't have to do that for every tom dick and harry on the internet yeah and i think especially i will say when this in this circumstance with the misogyny and stuff like for men i think there is a a onus on them to really step up Mm -hmm. like if you're in your your little chat group and someone is saying really horrific things about a woman it's up to you to say hey actually this is not okay you can't just be silent about it because me saying it to them doesn't matter they don't value my opinion they don't care about what i have to say but if you, as a mate, if all of you as a mate turned to that one person who was being like that and actually said this is not cool, that's how we can start making changes. Yep. Deny the endorsement. Be the Nick Nelson. Yeah, please. We need more of it. It's a minefield out there for people who really want to make a good difference, but there is also a lot of retribution for people who are a little confused, but they got the spirit. Like, they're trying and they do it a little bit wrong and then they get yelled at and they're like, well, I'm never saying anything again. They want to be helpful. It's a fine line of being like, I will do what I can do. It's a brave yeah. space you have to be in to, to try and push back against some of those really toxic ideas. But not not all our jobs. And certainly it's not the job of women on the internet to educate men who are just being jerks. No, and then the leader of the opposition party came out and said, oh, I don't, I, I'm not sure if women really face, women politicians face more negative commentary. Like, mate. I'm not interested in your opinion on this. Like, you, it's not the lived experience that you have. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, they do experience more oh, hate. 100%. Like, I have seen it firsthand. So I'm not really interested in another white man denying a reality just because it doesn't personally affect them. Like, get a grip. For sure. Flips table. <laughs> yeah. The Julia Gillard misogyny speech is one I keep coming back to is like an mm. excellent point mm-hmm. of cracking it and being like, no, we're done with this. And I am telling you exactly why. And I don't think it's actually changed that much with Australian politics, but I do think that it has helped illuminate a really seedy underbelly of Australian politics. And now we're getting our own, like, Me Too movement happening, which is really overdue. But, yeah. 
it was it was time australia has really weird defamation laws which means that it's really hard for you to like bring a case against someone because they can counter sue you for defamation if any little bit of it gets out so it's mm. even harder for like victims of sexual assault or harassment to like come forward because the defamation laws are so strict here it's really bananas but <sighs> anyone who's doing that work anyone who's brave enough to speak up like Anya. yeah well did you have a character you'd like to spotlight yeah i'm gonna spotlight penny because it really sucks to be dumped and it really sucks mm. to be dumped in a way that, like, you just flown eight hours and you're all grimy from the plane. And you have to have an argument to accomplish it. And you have to confront some awful truths about yourself. Uh, that's rough, buddy. Mm. Uh, who are you going to spotlight this week? I'm spotlighting Agatha mm. for being cynical and for <laughs> running from her trauma. Like, I get it, girl. I totally yeah. get it. Like, I understand how you got there. I understand why you just can't commit to any sort of feelings right now and I don't blame you so I think you know she's trying to figure it out and she's in it so yeah look sometimes you just have to stay at 15% activated until you can really deal with your stuff listen the coach of the all blacks once said to me it doesn't matter if you can only bring 15% bring 100% of that 15% that's fine so I bring that out at every team meeting I'm ever in where people are like Jane your energy seems a bit low and I'm like listen Steve Hansen told me (laughs) I only have to bring 100% of whatever I'm feeling. So yeah, the best that you are doing is the best that you can do. Yeah, you can't always be at 100. And if a high performance coach can say that, everyone else can just deal with it. That. that is a good point. And I feel like we don't give enough credit to people who, who are encouraging rest and restoration. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any homework for our listeners this week? My only homework is really, I'm going to say, go listen to the song Blue Jeans and White T-Shirts by the Gaslight Anthem. And if you like it, then you should listen to the album The 59 Sound because it's all Americana. It's perfect for road trips. It's long summer nights and big skies Mm. and dirt roads. And it is just delightful. Mm. So, yeah, we'll pop a link in the show notes. I might have to take myself for a long drive later. (laughs) Did you have any homework? I do. I wanted to tell everybody to watch Dickinson because it's a great show. It is on Apple TV, so if you don't have a subscription, you'll have to catch someone's login. But um, it is delightful. It is filled with a lot of darkness and light. The cast is incredible. The way that the narrative uses her poetry to like flesh out each episode is really incredible. And it's just got a good vibe, and it's fun. And Haley Steinfeld's in it, and I love her. So definitely check mm-hmm. that out. And then for books, I wanted to say I just finished Hellbent, which is the second book in the Alex Stern series by Lee Bardugo. And it's an adult series. It's not YA. It's, I would say, probably pretty triggering for people. It has a lot of drug use and abuse. So like, read mindfully, look for the content warnings and read mindfully. But it is an incredible second book. And I am not necessarily the act two person, but I felt like this book was so much better than the first one. And I have shipper goggles for two of the main characters but like i feel like i would be satisfied if it went either way as just friends or not just friends like i would be happy either way but the magic and the world building and the like lengths alex has, alex has to go to oh my gosh i just i've been thinking about it since i finished it so good question yeah. is it a trilogy i think it is oh okay well i was gonna start the first one but i am now i'm not going but you like the second book so read the first two and then you can wait because you like that act two no i need the conclusion (laughs) i can't read the act two without the conclusion i can read the first book first act fine but i can't read the second act without the conclusion can't do it i feel satisfied that if i didn't ever read the third one i'd be happy with where this one ended up i would be okay not finishing the series 
if I had just read these two. Like, I want to know what happens, but, like, I feel like I got what I needed out of this book because the first one set up a thing and the second one answered it. And then there's, like, another opening for another thing. So it was, like, not a trilogy in the sense that it's, like, a three-act structure as much as it is, like, it's there's ability for it to be a companion. Unrelated, but did you see Maggie Stiefwilder's Instagram today where she posted a, a pitch for us? Yeah. Companion novel for the school for your eyes. Yeah, and I was salty because I would have loved Finn's uh, story and I love love and it no. would have been so good. Yeah. And I think she's done writing YA, so I don't think we're going to ever get it, but like <laughs> I did see that and I was like, now I want this book and I'm going to think about the premise all week. <laughs> I'm so sad. But that's okay. <sighs> um. Well, next week we'll be reading chapters 14 through 20 through the theme of freedom. Which is going to be very exciting. Mm. I love it. Open roads, sunburns, cheesecake factory. It's all coming. It's all happening. America. 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 <laughs> Thank you for potting with me, Jen. This was really great. I had a fun time. Always lovely to see you. Can't wait for next week. All right. I will see you then. See ya. Thank you for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Jen D and Jen V. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to hello at marginaliapod.com, check out our Instagram, or maybe dash off a quick review. You can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our music is by Scott Buckley, and the logo artwork is by Laura Cato. You can find detailed show notes for each episode and much more at our website www.marginaliapod.com. Special thanks to all the people in our various communities whose love and care sustains us. Without your support, we would be very sad little critters. We appreciate you. And to you, our wonderful listeners, thanks again for being here. We love spending this time with you. 